Hey guys, welcome to episode three of the Posting and Toasting Show. If you are interested in who made that beat, um, just want to shout out our boy Mimar because he hooked us up with probably the best beats of any like podcast introduction out there, especially in Nixland because there's a lot of uh, lame ass beats out there. Yeah, just and, some horrible ones like Locked On Knicks. Yeah, yeah probably, exactly. Probably it's a little less good than Locked On Knicks, in my humble opinion. Probably everything about the show is better than Locked On Knicks. Every, uh, yeah, every single aspect of the show. I doubt it. <laughs> However, uh, I, I may have a bit of a vested interest in Locked On Knicks. So, yeah. so uh, I think you're just biased, unlike me, who has a very unbiased take here. That's true. That's true. I, I'm showing my media bias right now. Oh, man, big media bias. And uh, if you're Thanks, like, oh. <laughs> if you're wondering why that voice sounds familiar, that's my co-host, Schwinn. What up, Schwinn? What up? And uh, we have Alex Wolf of Posting and Toasting, the um, de facto editor-in-chief of Posting and Toasting. And we have, and he's the host of Lockdown Next. Hey, that's Alex. Yeah. Okay. How you doing? That, okay, that's enough. So... We are here to talk about a number of things. Well, not a number of things. We're going to mainly talk about this one article that was written by Nathaniel Friedman. Of, uh, he wrote it on GQ. So if you guys haven't read the article. He was the um, Free Darko guy. Mm-hmm. He was the Free Darko guy? Yeah. No, oh, okay. I don't know what that means, but we'll just keep going along. So if you want to pause the podcast, type what in What kind of member of NBA Twitter are you? Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm a pretty bad. I'm disgusted by this. I'm disgusted I, by it. Everyone... Everyone should be disgusted by me. Um, so if you haven't read the article, you can just pause the uh, podcast, type into Google the cult of the NBA general manager, read the article, then resume. Or you can not read the article and read it vicariously through us as we talk about it, which I would also recommend because there's nothing better than getting uh, third-hand information from something. And then we're going to debut a, a game. It's going to be a fun game. It's about uh, takes. And that's all. I'll save it up for there. Um, all right, Schwinn, do you want to, you know, want to like give like your first impression of this article at all? Uh, yeah. So I, I guess just to give a little background, the article just kind of touches about how, um, you know, I guess back in like early two thousands and before that, uh, obviously everybody knew that general managers and front offices existed and they had jobs. Everybody got that, but they weren't really focused on as much. And, um, kind of ever since, you know, Sam Presti took the Oklahoma city job. And I think after Ainge won his first, his first and only fucking championship with the Celtics, cause he's a bum ass loser. Um, uh, you know, like people got really focused on general managers and talk about them as much as all stars really, maybe even more. I mean, if you look at like, fucking Sixers Twitter, they don't shut the fuck up about Sam Hankey, um, even now, and he's been, what, not on the job for, what, is it over two years now? It's like, is it close to three years now? That he's, I believe it's, I believe it's yeah. about three years now, yeah. Yeah, so like, you know, it, it's kind of crazy to think about it. So it just touches on, on that and what it says about kind of like how we consume and view and talk about basketball now. Um, so I don't know, my, my take on it was like, I I don't know how much I want to talk specifically about that thought. I mean, I think some of that is just related to the fact that we consume so much more about basketball. We know so much more about basketball uh, than we could have possibly known in the 90s and early 2000s and stuff before, like, 
not even just before the internet, but like, you know, Twitter has completely changed how much access we have. Like I can follow beat writers in, you know, Oklahoma City, no problem. Right. I can I can keep up with everything related to the Thunder without I, I could be in fucking Slovenia and it wouldn't matter. Right? You know, like you can be in touch with you can kind of stay informed of everything around the NBA so easily on Twitter now. So I don't know how much that the fact that we know so much more about general managers and front offices in general is because of like the changing nature of fandom or if it's just like the influence that different kind of paths of information we have now and how much more we know now uh, allows us to do that and evaluate that stuff. But uh, you know, I think, it, what it touched on towards the end is kind of like, and he actually, he throws in a pretty subtle jab here, not even that subtle actually, at, um, where was it? It's something he says about Ainge. It's really funny. He says, His tragic comic insistence on hoarding assets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. But I mean, it is, like, I think, I think that is, and I don't, and of course, as much as I love to dig at Ainge, um, like that's, that's the, one thing in the, in the piece that really kind of like stuck with me, and it's not just because it's a great, hilarious shot at Ainge, but it's, it is like that. It's, I think it's just so crazy to me how obsessed with like future theoretical value people are with every team. And it's like, you know, like I've seen all these takes that, oh man, Presti did so well. You know, he did so well. And it's like, no, he didn't fucking do well. He didn't do well. He had, he drafted three MVPs. That, he drafted three MVPs in a row. And he drafted Ibaka. Okay? Like, I'm sorry, but I don't care that fucking 10 years after that, he now has, what is it, 15 first round picks in seven years because he literally wasted a decade. He wasted a fucking decade, got to one finals, and didn't win shit. He didn't win anything. That's the point of basketball. The point of that, the point of the NBA is not that like you maximize your opportunity cost and your future like upside potential and all this shit. No, the point of the game is to win. And like that's what I always that was always my problem with how Ainge approached like yeah, there's a point where you have all these assets and that's a great thing. But once you turn that in like there's a comes a point where you need to turn that into on-court value, on-court production. And the thing that's crazy about Oklahoma City is he he did it without even like hoarding a ton of assets, right? He just hit the jackpot right in the beginning and then completely failed to to like make it happen. So, I guess maybe in some ways are like it's it's I feel like once you get labeled as a genius, you can kind of like always fall back on that to an extent as long as you don't do anything too stupid. Like even la- like when they traded for Paul George, it was like, oh man, look at how he rebooted without Kevin Durant. And then like they got Carmelo Anthony and he turned Carmelo Anthony into like Schroeder and some shit. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? It's like, and people are like, oh man, look at Presti just reloading on the fly. And it's like, he's not reloading. He's, I mean, he is kind of reloading, but it's like, I, I mean, you went from a bazooka to a goddamn potato gun. Like, yeah. I, don't I know. mean, if I'm being honest, I think. As far as Presti goes, I mean, not to turn this into like a Thunder podcast, but I think that he's done about as well with the hand he's been dealt as he could. Like, even if you look all the way back to like the James Harden saga, 
you know, and why they wound up eventually shipping him out. It was in large part because ownership was afraid of the luxury tax, which is ridiculous. I still can't believe that there's like a single owner in the NBA other than maybe Michael Jordan, who I think honestly is the only like fake rich NBA owner, which sounds absurd to say, but like, he's not, he's not like gazillion cash rich. Yeah, exactly. He's not like gazillionaire rich. He's just like, like mega celebrity rich, but he's not like, he's rich on a balance sheet, but he's exactly, not, he doesn't exactly. have the cash flow to back it up. That's the problem. Exactly. Whereas all the rest of these owners around the NBA are like filthy rich. Like this is just a hobby for them. Like it, it, it blows my mind that any owner would ever be like, Oh, we're a small market. We can't, we can't go into the luxury tax when things like revenue sharing and things like that exist where like, it's not like, because the Oklahoma City Thunder sell less jerseys than the Los Angeles Lakers, that they get less money because all that money gets put into a pool and then distributed evenly amongst all the teams. It's it's always such a stupid argument to me. But uh and you know they they sell out games and everything else. But to get back to the point, I mean I think that given the pressure that he's gotten from ownership, he's done a good job. Um, See, I I completely disagree with that because like okay, I can understand the Harden trade, and I actually think like they did. All things considered, like at that time, they did find, like they got Kevin Martin, who was a six man of the year, I think, or he, he was like up there the next year. No, I mean, that was a bad trade at the time. No, it was a bad was trade, a... but it was, it was forced on him. So I can like, I can give him some leeway on like the actual return he received, right? Like Kevin Martin was like a pretty decent six man for them. Uh, Steven Adams was one of the picks they turned out. Like they probably should have held on to Jeremy Lamb, who's turned into like a, pretty decent swing man um you know those are things but like that's part of the problem right like he didn't hold on to jeremy lamb he traded him um they didn't keep kevin martin after the trade and like that depleted their bench and then they didn't have any shooting and then to address their shooting like he never addressed like okay fine you trade james harden right so now you have westbrook and you have durant what do you need around forget those two what do you need around every superstar for like the last seven eight years the nba what do you look for right you look for like a rim protector, kind of interior presence guy, and then you need shooting. That is what you need. And he never prioritized that. He never prioritized it. He always prioritized athleticism and wingspan and all these physical tools, and he just never went out and got fucking veteran shooters, which is a joke. Like, his the only time he moved for a quote-unquote shooter was when he traded for Dion Waiters, like, and then didn't keep him anyway. So I, I disagree that. I think Presti did... His, like, build-up to build a contender was perfect, but, like, he never, like, he was so close to finishing this perfect portrait, and then he just, like, got drunk and, like, sloppily put a couple of fucking random brushstrokes somewhere. Like, it, it, he just, I, I, I don't agree that he did everything right. Like, I think, I think once you get to the point that he had them at, you absolutely have to win a championship. You cannot not win a champion. Like, you don't get a pass. Circumstances do not let you get a pass for not winning a championship. I know that one year Durant got hurt. I know one year Russell Westbrook got hurt. Um, like, I'm sorry. They had enough time. They had, like, what? Harden trade was 2012. They had mm-hmm. four years after that. No, I don't, I don't buy that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it wasn't, a, like, obviously he didn't win the whole thing. They came pretty damn close, uh, the year that they took. Golden State to seven, or that Golden State came back on them from the three-one. But then, obviously, like you know, Durant leaves. That's kind of like the biggest blow possible. And then they still managed to at least be a playoff team. I think. I mean, if we want to get back to the point of this offseason and how like the whole fifteen picks thing 
should be viewed. I, I think the way I look at it is Presti is playing the game the way that it's supposed to be played right now based off how people value things in the NBA right now. Because the reality is, is he's never going to, he's never going to lure a top free agent to Oklahoma City. It's just, it's never going to happen. So he traded his two top free agent type guys and got a whole bunch of draft picks. So hopefully somewhere down the line, if they draft somebody that turns into like a superstar, then they can use those extra picks to trade for another superstar and maybe compete again. But I mean, you know, it's like you said, obviously he didn't do it perfect. He's not the perfect GM because he didn't win a championship and he shouldn't be viewed as such. I just think that, I, I certainly wouldn't say that he's like a bad GM or anything. I, no, but I, I, I don't think he should be viewed as, as the best ever, but I think he's definitely a good GM and, and probably in the top third of the league and he should be looked at that way. Well, I want to push back on this idea that we keep talking about reducing success to championship or bust. I, it, it's very Ricky Bobby of us in the idea that, um, the idea that the Oklahoma City Thunder haven't been successful mainly because they haven't won championship. I mean, if you go back to the Knicks in the 90s, they never won a championship they made. The Knicks didn't have three fucking MVP players no, what, on their roster. Okay, no, I I'm don't, getting, you know, I don't know. No, no, I don't, what I'm getting don't, at, no, what I'm getting at is the idea of how do we actually determine what is success and what isn't success in the NBA. Because I think, because from this article and just looking at it on how discussions kind of come about now with all this information is that success is mainly defined as if you don't win a championship, you're not successful. And if you failed at that aspect, you you know, the idea of, like, there's just failure in it. So if you want to say that because the Oklahoma City Thunder had three MVPs, they should have won, that's fine. Because, you know, the idea of, you know, talent is relative. So I kind of want to ask this sort of idea of were the Knicks actually successful in the 90s? Were the, Haw- were the Joe Johnson Hawks actually successful for having sustained success over – a number of years. You get what I'm at? Like, I'm, I'm wondering. I, the get, idea. I get what you're saying. So there's like different ways to look at it, right? So like, you're talking about the Knicks in the nineties. The Knicks in the nineties should have won a championship if they did not make the Rod Strickland trade. So mm-hmm. like, everybody should know that any, any Knicks fan, just go Google Rod Strickland trade. Like, that's a joke that they made that trade and it probably cost, it definitely cost them at least one championship. Um, so like, I think that was also a different front office than what came after that under Pat Riley and such. So, I mean, I, I'd have to read up on that again. So, like, I, I don't want to talk too much about that. Uh, I would say that, like, I would say that they never had the type of – I don't think the transaction game in the 90s is comparable to what we see now. Uh, probably starting in, like, the mid-2000s, which this article touches upon is how, like, kind of this new wave of general managers headlined by Presti came in and started like, I mean, they basically new wave the old generation, right? Where they were like, okay, so you think that like first round picks aren't worth shit. Okay, cool. I'll take two of those for eating a salary. That's fine. And would, like, it, would it almost be right? Sorry to interrupt. Would it almost okay. be right to call like this current crop of GMs? Like it's almost like the 2K generation. Like I feel like how they operate now is like yeah, how you, operated on NBA 2K from like the time I was a kid. So I, well, the comparison I always, especially because you look at like how many of these new ownership groups are all these like fucking venture capital types. Um, and what I think 
is a better they they remind me a lot of like i don't know if you guys have ever i don't i don't know if you guys have ever, you guys haven't read this book uh i mean if you read the if you've watched the big short or read the big short um that's along the same lines but there's also this book called the quants which is about like how kind of like leading up to the 2007 2008 collapse of the market um all these like math geniuses came into wall street and they were just kept playing this leverage game right like they just kept leveraging shit and they kind of like lost sight of the track that like you know you can keep leveraging stuff and building up assets and like theoretical value on a spreadsheet but ultimately like the bill gets you know you got to pay it at some point so like you know it, it kind of just reminds me of like all these guys that come in and hoard assets and hoard assets and trade for picks and trade and it's like that stuff is great like don't get me wrong i think when you're rebuilding that is when you're at that starting point like the first maybe whatever you want to say i don't know how many steps there are specifically to rebuilding but like you know when you're in the first couple of stages of it having extra assets accumulating extra assets is certainly like a, a very valuable part of that process but there comes a point where excess assets don't really mean anything to you or they don't mean as much right and it's better to use them even if like you're overpaying theoretically like if you're overpaying quote unquote for an upgrade on the court it's worth it to overpay like people would like i think a lot of people would say that the clippers overpaid to get paul george even if even if you're saying they got Kawhi leonard out of it too right they gave up five first round picks they gave up two pick swaps they gave up shea gilgis alexander and they gave up galinari like that's a massive haul massive haul um and i think a lot of people would say they overpaid but like What's what is the, what do they get out of that, right? Like they are now a legitimate championship contender. I think they're probably the betting. I think they are the betting favorite. Um, that's what you get out of it. And it's like I see like so many of these GMs now. Like Hinky was like did a great job of accumulating assets and all that stuff. But it's like you know people acted like he reinvented the fucking wheel here. And it's like man, Presti took salary dumps a decade before Hinky was ever on the scene. Uh, Presti got two picks for eating Kurt Thomas's contract from the Suns, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think one of those ended up being Ibaka. So, like, you know, he was doing – this isn't like – like, it's not like Hinky invented anything. He just took it to the, like, extreme – like there, there was, comical level. Well, there was – and there was, like, there was no – he was, like, very open about it, right? There was no, like – he wasn't even – when he would talk, it wasn't like he was – you know, you get a lot of GM speak, right? Like, we're not tanking. Like, we're – we're going to try to put the best – there was, like, none of that. He was just like, yeah, look, like, we're – I mean, I, in not not so many words, he was like, trust the process. We're tanking. Like, it's all going to be worth it one day. And, like, that's fine. It was – and it did end up being worth it. But, like, did it end up being worth it because he accumulated all those assets? Like, the Simmons pick was their pick. The Embiid pick was their pick. And they only landed Embiid because his back went out in the pre-draft process, so he dropped to them. Um, like, you know, that, that's just luck. That isn't necessarily genius GMing. And I think, uh, again, going back to this piece, like that's, I, I think he, you kind of like, he kind of touches on that stuff where it's like, you know, there isn't some proper way to build a team, you know, like there are different paths you can take to building a team. And within those paths, there's probably ways to maximize your odds optimally, but like, there isn't one true path, you know, like no single even even hinky said that in his like fucking 16 page manifesto that you know there isn't there's not one thing you can do that guarantees you a championship because like 
no matter how much your great your odds are in the beginning because of the value of all these picks and stuff you've accumulated, cap flexibility, all that shit, like ultimately once you start converting that into good players that you need to pay salaries, like your margin for error goes down drastically. And no matter how much flexibility you had to start with, it, it it's you know you're you're always going to be on the margins, right? Like even I mean, look at how the Warriors built their dynasty. How much luck was involved in that? I mean, quite a bit of luck. Yeah, I'm actually going to read something from the piece that kind of touches on all this. So here's a here's me struggling to read the internet. So just uh, so just bear with me. Um, this is from the you know the Nathaniel um, Friedman piece. The underlying logic of this class is consistent. It always assumes that basketball is made up of problems with intelligible solutions. And that landing on just the right model would once and for all solve the ultimate problem of how to win games while being fiscally prudent. But the exact nature of that model is up for debate, which is how you end up with approaches as relatively distinct as Sam Hankey's process, Daryl Morey's data-driven rockets, and Danny Ainge's, you know, tragic comic insistence supporting <laughs> assets. <laughs> I just love that line. It's just wonderful. Um, in all three cases, we saw general managers attempt to figure out basketball. We saw their model yield some results. But looking at these teams now, it's clear that none of them have cracked the code, or else they would have, they would all have gone deep into the playoffs several years running. Identifying what you believe to be the right way to do things means that when it doesn't work, your hypothesis has been disproven, and there's nothing to do but introduce a new hypothesis and start from there. I really think that kind of captures this whole idea this whole discussion about like the proper way to build a team. And you kind of see that now, especially as the internet has grown with, you know, having like general manager mode and 2k, it's this idea of like, if we accumulate, you know, kind of like for the process and more, the idea of like, well, not more, but uh, mainly like ancient Hanky, the idea of accumulating assets, accumulating picks and just like building through the draft and kind of like stockpiling these sort of things. And you kind of see like all three people have failed. Right in there, it's the idea of like this sort of model that's really no, no, no. Hinky, Hinky didn't fail, dude. He died for his for their sins. That's right. He's a uh, he's a martyr. But like the Sixers are still to be determined, and I don't think they actually built their team. Like the process, I don't think actually yielded what like the actual process didn't actually produce what they have. It's I think a lot more luck actually. So, so just just to play devil's advocate, wouldn't wouldn't the counter argument be that like you know, we don't know what Hinky would have done, obviously, if he had, because he he got fired before they actually got the Simmons pick, right? He got fired like leading up to that, that is or, true. or something, right? So like, I guess the argument that a lot of Sixers fans have is that, you know, they have mismanaged their assets since then, even in the process of like, kind of stumbling into building a contender almost, um, and. Therefore, Hinky wouldn't have done it that way, and they would have been guaranteed success. But it's like, you know, the problem I have with that is, like, they they tra- like I I think for the most part, from what I remember, most Philly fans, most people in general, were very much on board with the Fultz trade after that, right? Like, I, th- I think everybody was like, okay, this is worth it for us mm-hmm. to make this trade, and mm-hmm. and. I thought it was a great trade for them. I'm not going to lie. I thought it was a great trade for them because he was like, theoretically, a 6'5 guard that can play on and off ball is exactly what you want with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And it didn't work out, but no one who could have predict, no one could have predicted that. And like, I don't care how many Celtics accolade, like Danny Ainge, you know, butt kissers are out there saying that he knew he, he didn't know. 
He had no idea. He just no, knows. Yeah, it's nobody knew Fultz had yeah. thoracic outlet syndrome. Yeah. Nobody knew that. And it's like, that's, see, like, that's the thing. I think Hinky might have made that trade. I think he might have, because I think he would have been like, look, I had these two studs right now. Like, it, like, they're good enough now. We can win a chip. Like, we can win a chip right now. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna make moves to do that. I think he would have made that trade. Uh, at least think it's like, it's at least within the realm of possibility, correct? Um, and, like, I, I have a hard time calling that a stupid trade. I just, I do because you could not have predicted that. And that, like, that's the shit, that's the kind of luck that, like, you know, no matter how smart you are, how good a GM you are, there's so much, there's so much luck involved in these things. Like, you know, people forget the Warriors. They wanted to max out Dwight Howard. Like yeah. in, in 20, mm-hmm. what was it, 2014, I think. Uh, you know, so they, they wouldn't, have, they didn't want to get Igadala. That was their backup plan. Like their primary goal was to get Dwight. And the year, and the year that we signed Tyson, they wanted to give Tyson a big deal. And then they tried to get DeAndre Jordan. So mm-hmm. like, you know, like there's so much luck in, like even the Nets, right? We can talk about the Nets a little bit. Like how, like, you know, sure. I, I, I think Marks is like a pretty good GM, but how lucky is he? that Miami matched on Tyler Johnson and uh, Portland matched on Alan Crabb, who we then stupidly traded for anyway. And then how lucky is he that Washington matched on Otto Porter Jr.? Otto Porter, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like we don't talk – we only talk about these guys' hits. It's like for certain – for certain GMs, anyway, we only talk about all the good things they've done and how smart it is and all. And then, and then it's like you never, you never talk about the dumb shit they did. Like Danny H., like, you know – there was that thing today or this week where like ESPN, what they they like pulled twenty execs around the league or something, and you know it was like who had the most confusing summer. I don't know if that was that the question or was it the worst summer. I don't remember. Um, and I think like the Knicks ended up pulled. They were tied with somebody else for like they had like, the, the worst votes. Yeah, and it was like like look, I can understand looking at the Knicks summer and being like, yeah, I don't think they had a good summer. All right, I I can get that. What I don't get is how. You can objectively say like a 17 win team signing a bunch of dudes to like basically one plus one contracts is a worse summer than the Celtics who went into the summer or like went into last season with championship expectations, a roster that people were saying was the deepest roster in the league, uh, plenty of young talent, plenty of assets, uh, a star in his prime in Kyrie, another star coming back also in his prime from injury in Hayward. Al Horford, who was like still a very, very good player. Um, and it's like now, like what was their summer? They lost Kyrie, they lost Horford, and they replaced him with Kemba and Cantor. Like really? Like, see, like that, and that, that's, that kind of goes back to, you know, I don't think if you asked anybody, did the Celtics have a good summer? I don't think people would say yes, but like they'll give Ainge credit for getting Kemba, even though it's essentially a downgrade. Right. Well, you don't know anything about opportunity costs, so that's why <laughs> the Celtics did well and the Knicks did poorly. Is yeah, because yeah. the opportunity cost of an early bird right re-signing isn't the same as the opportunity cost of a um, Westbrook trade or the opportunity cost <laughs> of a full bird right re-signing at full max capacity instead of 175% of the cap for right. four to five years. So. Yeah. That's I mean, thing. I think you really need to learn about opportunity cost before you speak on the fact that the Knicks had a good or bad summer. <laughs> That's the thing that keeps bugging me, though, is, like, people keep being I, – I see this all the time. The people that want to shit on the Knicks for this summer being like, 
well, they only sign guys to one-year deals. That doesn't give them any flexibility. Well, yeah, it does. It gives them so much because they sign to one plus one. It's like everybody keeps forgetting that they have second-year options on all these guys. So if, for example, Reggie Bullock comes in, who you, because of his injury, you wound up getting for, like, quite frankly, a bargain contract. You know, if he comes in and plays like he's capable of playing, you can then renew him for a second year at like a $4 million figure for next season. 100% uh, a team is trading for that. And someone would yeah. absolutely trade for that. Or then you can carry him into that next off season and sign him using early bird rights and give him almost double of what he was getting before, which would be about a $10 million contract, which we already saw was his, uh, his market value this year, right. you know, coming off a, a pretty darn good year. So it's like, it's stupid. I don't, I don't know how people look at this and are like, Oh, uh, like they, they did fucked up. Yeah, like, and, and they it, didn't. They didn't like forget that they're one plus one. Everyone has been purposely refusing omitting. to accept the fact. They're purposely omitting the fact that these are one plus ones. Those are actually two year contracts with an option. Like this. well, because they're they're assuming already, the idea of like oh they're one. They, I feel like they're assuming already that because they made them one plus one deals, the Knicks are just going to decline everybody next summer but even, but and if they chase do, but the if they, shitty free agents again. But know, if they do, it's not that big of a problem anyway. Yeah, yeah, if they did that, like, that's... I don't I don't see, like, why they, is that... Who cares? Just do it again. Yeah. yeah. And, and, <laughs> so, and, like, but, like, also, like, I know I've talked about the Celtics way too much, but, like, like if like the Rockets had got the same treatment. Like, people... I, I've seen this with Maury, where, like, he makes this Westbrook trade, and people are like, well, he had to do it. Why the fuck did he have to do it? He had, like... Okay, fine. Even if he has to make that deal, he has to give up two first round picks and he has to give up two pick swaps. Like I, I just, it's amazing to me how once you get labeled as like a smart GM or whatever, like you get this pass on so many things or like not even a pass, but it's almost like, like people are, are actually, they're so much more willing to explain the, yeah, there's, there's the, the circumstances. Yeah, to rationalize everything yeah, and, with, and, with these things. And I, and I kind of think that that's what Friedman is – that's part of, I think, what he's talking about here, where it's like, you know, there isn't – again, like there's no right way to do things, and we should stop treating all these guys as, like, geniuses that have figured out basketball because they haven't – no, you can't figure out a dynamic – like, there's no one solution to figuring out, like, a dynamic marketplace, right? Like, we've seen that in any industry, in any business over the course of history. That's a fact. Like you cannot have one business model and not alter it, not make and not just like alter it, but like make significant changes to it over the course of time to to adapt. Um, and you know, it's like, like I, I always, you know, Popovich always talks about this too. And it's like he's like, look, he's like, if it was up to me, like I would ban the three point shot. I would ban it because I hate it. I think it's like an abomination to the game. Like it's a, I think he's called it like a bastardization of the game. Um, but, like, at the same time, if you look over, like, the last 15 years going back, the Spurs have consistently been, like, like one of the, the teams that, like, hunts out corner threes and, like, offensively and snuffs them out defensively, right? So it's like, you know, of course Pop, Popovich would love to, like, I think he would love nothing more than to go back to, like, late 90s, just, like, throw the ball into Duncan, clear out the side kind of, like, basketball. I think he would love to do that. But he knows that, like, that just isn't – like, you can't play the game like that anymore. Like, he knows that, right? And he's changed his approach. And even though the Spurs consistently are, like, one of the top mid-range shooting teams, both in terms of percentage and volume, like, they're also – even if their volume from three isn't high, 
they're produce like high, high quality three point shots and they shoot at a very high clip, right? So it's like maybe they're like their valuation, if you just look at it in terms of shot volume, Daryl Morey would probably like have a heart attack. But the way they value it is just different, right? And I think like that's kind of where we are with basketball, where it's like people just look at things on a very surface level without, you know, wanting to accept like maybe there's more than one way to to do this shit. And, um, you know, even like the Bucks are a really good example of this where like, yeah, of course, Budenholzer loves threes and he loves spreading the floor out. But like is the purpose of them spreading the floor out to get threes? No, it's not. The purpose of them spreading the floor out is to let Giannis just like be perimeter shack and just bully his way to the rim and shoot like 3000% at the rim, right? Like there's just so many different ways to approach basketball and to think that any, and it's like that, that means that I don't think that any of those, I don't think what Hinky did is wrong. I don't think how Daryl Morey approaches things is wrong. I don't think that Danny Ainge's approach is wrong until he gets all these assets and is too much of a fucking coward to pull the trigger on any deal. Um, like none of those approaches are wrong inherently. They all have their like, like very, very good arguments in their favor. Um, but like, so do other approaches, right? And I, I just think, you know, like we need to just stop. No, nobody has the one answer. Nobody does. So if I may offer a simple thought on this, I think, I think we could probably agree that there are, there are right ways to run a team. There are wrong ways to run a team, but I don't think there is one unified, perfect way to run a team, which some GMs get lauded as having this perfect strategy that like should definitely yield results. And, you know, like people look at Daryl Morey and they're like, Oh my God, he's, he's like the perfect GM, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is he's not, he he's done it. You could argue the right way in the way that he's approached things, but you could also argue that he's done things the wrong way a lot of times. I mean, one thing that I'll say about Daryl Morey is he's not a people person. Like, I, I don't think players – unless maybe unless you're like the James Harden of the world, you know, that's like that his – like, kisses his ass, right? Yeah, that, you know, he's like <laughs> – James Harden is, is more his golden boy. But other than that, I, I really don't James think James Harden that, is actually the greatest isolation scorer of all time, according to Yeah, but I don't think that I, – I, I, don't, I don't think that like – players necessarily like the Rockets because Daryl Morey, other than like his, his one or two top guys always treats his team like just a bunch of objects. You know what I mean? Like they're just, they're just, do you, do you remember how like when Phil was here, right? Like there was always like this whole thing with the triangle, how it was like, guys were like, it's so rigid, right? It's not fun because it's rigid. Like we all have like these specific tasks that we have to perform. And it's like, I don't know, man, like I watched the Rockets play. And other than, like, for James Harden, who is that fun for? Who is that fun? Like, it doesn't – there's, like, very basic things everybody else has to do, which is stand around the three-point line. And, like, Clint Capella is allowed to set screens and roll to the rim. Everybody else is expected to, like, just, like, spot up and watch. And, like, maybe they get a kick out. and Or, or cut or crash for a rebound. Right. It. And it's, like – like, I agree with you on that. It just seems like if Daryl Morey is the one – and that's fine. Like, I, I have – I've defended this actually multiple times because I think it's totally fine for a GM to dictate, like, as long as he's making it clear to the coach when he hires them, like, look, we're going to shoot threes and we're going to shoot shots at the rim and I don't want any mid-range. Or I want as minimal of mid-range as possible. If As long as he makes that clear to whoever the coach he hires before he hires them, 
I think that's totally fine. That's in game. Like that's, that's fine. That's how he wants his coach and his team to play. That's totally in bounds. Um, but like, you know, if you're a player, I mean, I don't know. We've all played pickup, right? It's like, it'd be weird if you were just playing pickup and you were like, 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 all right. Uh, I don't know. How, it, it just, it just strange. Like there needs to be, I, I feel like when you play basketball, there should always be some kind of like, uh, like, you know, creativity or off, kind of like off the cuff things you do. And when you watch the Rockets, it just, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like everything is very, very methodical and it's like they're following a script, you know? That's what it feels like. And when I watch, I don't know, say the Warriors, it doesn't feel like they're playing off a script, you know? Like when they're, when the Warriors are at their best, even when the Rockets are at their best, don't you still feel like they're playing off of a script? Mm -hmm. And I feel like when other, really really good teams are playing at their best it's like you don't know what they're gonna do you, you don't kind of don't know how to handle them whereas with the rockets it's like when they're at their best you still know how to handle them you just can't because they're on fire or james harden is like you know on one or like drawing 78 fouls in a game or whatever it is like it's it's i don't know i, I agree with you though on that point well so, you kind of saw where the idea of like who is it enjoyable for like the rocket it mainly is hard because you saw chris paul and him kind of have this huge, you know, beef with each other because Chris Paul wants to run the offense a certain way as well. That doesn't really allow for him to do what he does best, whatever, you know, Chris Paul thing. So you kind of saw that. So I, it, it's actually going to be really fascinating to see when Westbrook comes in because Westbrook doesn't move without off the ball. He doesn't shoot well either. So he it, loves that. I, he loves that elbow pull up too. Oh yeah. That elbow pull up that goes in what 30% of the time. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned Paul though, because if I remember, like, wasn't Paul one of these, like, he's like one of those rare kind of math-breaking mid-range shooters, right? Before he got to the Rockets, like, for he years, is. wasn't yes. he? Yes, he always yes. was. And I, I always found it weird that, like, I feel like they didn't utilize that enough while he was there. Because well, they were trying to in that off, you know, in right. the past, not, not this past year, but the year before when he got hurt, though, because he was trying to get a foul call because he's, like, flung himself in and he, like, hurt his leg. <laughs> it is like, what are you doing? But, like, yeah, so the idea of they were they were going to kind of exploit that when the you know when the threes and the shots at the rim were not falling, you can give the ball to Chris Paul and he will pull up and make it about roughly fifty percent of the time, and that's really good for mid range shooters. And that's kind of like that goal for like yeah, so like that's what he wants. And then he just like then he got hurt, and then he like you don't have any other options except you just go back to that script. All right, we're gonna shoot threes and get shots at the rim, but teams can take away shots at the rim by funneling with their defense, so you're talking about a high-variance shot of what are three-pointers, and you kind of saw that in that last game where they missed 22 shots. Like, yeah, it's unprecedented in, like, the larger scope, but, like, three-point shooting is really is volatile, and you're going to go through stretches where you are going to miss, like, 20 shots. Like, so, shit happens that way. It was pretty interesting, too, because I think, like, was it, I don't know, it was, like, back-to-back games, because they missed, like, 78, whatever it was, 22 threes in that game seven, and then the Celtics missed, like, 25 threes or something in their game seven against the Cavs. And, yeah. and, you know, it kind of happened again this year in the playoffs where Houston went ice cold from three against the Warriors at critical points. And it's like, I don't know, I, 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 I do wonder if there's something to be said about like, you know, after you go through an 82 game season and you're going through like these just grueling playoff series, like, I, I think it is, it is harder to shoot. And like also in the playoffs, teams are, you know, they're aware of like, who can, who, like, there are guys that you can run off the line and 
when they put the ball on the floor, you're like, all right, job done. Like, I don't need to worry about anything because he's not going to do shit with this. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like you know who those guys are and you key in on them. Um, so I don't know. I, I just find that I, – I, I don't – I, I know what you're saying that it's, like, volatile, but I do wonder if, like, there's some level of it's not that random at that point. Do you know what I'm – you get what I'm saying? Yeah, like, there is a – at some point, I'm assuming I, – I wish I could even do some math on this. But, like, even just, yeah, like, do just it, kind of like watch – Yeah, I can, I can do some math on this. But the idea of if you're just going to focus on two specific type of shots, we're only going to take threes and we're only going to take shots at the rim. So if the defense kind of knows the sort of script that you're running, and they're like, all right, well, James Harden isn't going to do pull-up shots at the foul line. We'll just force him to take those shots, right? So the idea of like, all right, we'll just take away these two shots. That's fine. It doesn't really matter. So I do think running on this very reduced, simplified offense will work in 82 games because teams are just like, "Eh, whatever, we'll just – you know, we're not worried about that right now, but with one team focusing on it over the course of like two weeks, yeah, that, that kind of matters and you can take away those sort of things. Yeah. Hey, I have something that I've wanted to circle back to that you asked a couple right, minutes ago. It, it might be a good way to actually sort of wrap this, wrap this up, if I may. Oh, are you, are you trying to, uh, host oh, the show now? No, 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 because I'm next, actually really excited to get to take that take. I'm, are you I'm excited. To annex the show? No, no. Yes, I'm. I'm trying to. Uh, I'm, you know, being a, a podcast imperialist right now. I'm trying to uh, add you to the lockdown. Of course, of course, the white guy here is trying to imperialize our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> says the other white guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but <laughs> anyway, the thing that the thing that I've been thinking about for a couple minutes is, you know, your general question, Drew of how we define success for a GM or for a team or whatever. And I like what I was thinking of was like what I consider, like you, you brought up like the Hawks of like the mid two thousands. I was thinking of like the Grizzlies, like the grit and grind Grizzlies, what mm-hmm. I consider them a success. And I think like my general consensus, if you were to ask me that would be like, yeah, I, I do think that a team like the grit and grind Grizzlies was a success because I think that if we were going to, like, write up a criteria for, like, the – call it, like, the mid-level success or whatever, like, obviously there's championship success, which is, like, the ultimate. Like, that's the peak. But I think when you look at these teams that were consistent, like, whatever, like, three to three to six, three to seven seeds, you know, that have been for years, especially in the Western Conference where, like, seeding a lot of times didn't matter as much because there were so many good teams just, like – from one to eight that were only separated by, you know, a handful of wins because the West has just been so good. Um, I, I just feel like you can judge them a success or a failure based on how prudent they are with their moves and how, how smart they are with recognizing their limitations. Like, I think that that's a, a real thing to consider. Like you look at a team like the Grizzlies and they, they took minimal risks. They tried to add good role players around their stars. They had Conley. They had Gasol. They had Zebo for a while. They had Tony Allen. You know, they had this core that worked for them and was getting them to the playoffs. Occasionally got them to the second round of the playoffs. I think that was as far as they ever got, right? They yeah, never they, made, they made They made one Western Conference. Yeah, they made one. They, they made one, one WCF. That's right. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, I would consider that. I would, I would consider that era a success for them because they didn't, they never mortgaged the future. They never went crazy. And, you know, they, they sort of just put out a team that, that played good basketball and was fun for the fans. Like ultimately, like if you would tell me today, like, 
okay, you know, the Knicks can either keep, uh, like, keep shooting for the moon or whatever, or you could get 10 years of consistent basketball, consistent good playoff basketball. Maybe they'll break through and win a championship, but more than likely they're going to be a second round or maybe an Easter Conference final team for, like, seven to 10 years. I, I'd probably take that option because I'm like, I, I just, I, I would consider that a success personally. If the Knicks could be a consistent, like, three to six seed, give people trouble in the playoffs and generally just play an enjoyable brand of basketball. That's one measure of success to me, at least as a fan. Yeah. I mean, basketball is supposed to be fun. So like if you're a fan and you're enjoying the product that's put out there, that's successful in its own way. Um, I don't know how to feel about, like, I feel like it's hard because so Memphis never actually went like, like, they went all in at a very late point, and they realized they messed up, and they pulled the plug fairly quick. I think they, like, that once they signed the Parsons contract, mm-hmm. and I knew Parsons was shot, um, they, like, kind of tried to reboot on the fly by hiring Fisdale and, like, playing smaller. And But I think they kind of knew, you know, pretty quick after that first year under Fisdale that, like, you know, that team didn't really have the juice to go anywhere. Um, so... I'm, I think it's fine to like have that, maintain that level of success as long as you're not making moves that, like, there comes a point then though when you, you're like, eventually if you're gonna, if you keep hitting your head at a, on a ceiling, right? Like you're gonna try to make a move to, to like, you know, elevate your ceiling, like, you know, give yourself more room. And if you make that move and the ceiling hasn't changed, that's, that's kind of like when it's time to, pull the plug but i think there is something to be said about having sustained success and suffering through kind of like deja vu constantly right there is like there is value to that the raptors proved that and they and they picked the right time and like they took advantage of a lot of interesting circumstances that allowed them to get Kawhi leonard for you know what i honestly consider basic basically nothing um you know like and and they won a championship and i'm sure like Durant got hurt and Clay got hurt and like that helped them sure but like who fucking cares man like ten years from now no one's gonna be like oh man well Toronto won a chip but there's an asterisk next to it like no nobody says that you know like nobody says oh there's an asterisk on the Spurs 1999 championship because Ewing was hurt and they played a short like strike shortened season like nobody cares nobody cares down the line like all that matters is putting your name in that book and like getting your name on the on the Larry O'Brien Trophy um, so. I agree with you that like there's value to that and fans should probably appreciate that a bit more, which I know is hard to do with like the amount of trolling that happens on Twitter. Um, but you know, within that context, there's obviously a time where you're like, okay, look, like, are we going to make a move here? And if we're not going to make a move here to try and win, you know, it's probably best to just like move these guys out and move on. And, um, but I I think that's basically that's. That's basically what happened with Oklahoma City, right? Like, they made their all-in moves. They didn't go anywhere, and they're like, all right, fuck this. Let's just pull the plug. Mm-hmm. And I think that was smart. I think it's safe to say that, like, it, it, there's there's nothing wrong with riding it out with a good core for a little bit as long as you don't ride it for too long. Like, it's all just about knowing the right time to duck out, just like what you said. Like, like the Grizzlies, I think, even though they – you know, you could argue they maybe waited a little bit too long. They, I feel like they still got – you know, they they hit it more you or less. Understand it too. Like they they yeah. they have like the worst profit margin or something. Like they they have the lowest revenue maybe in the league or something like that. Like yeah. they don't make money. So I get why it's well, very hard for a, a market like them 
to pull the plug on kind of like the only period of success they've had in their franchise history. Not that their franchise history is long, but like it's hard. It is hard. Like that's that is if you think of the Grizzlies, like if I think of the Grizzlies, right? Like like if I think of the Knicks, just as an even as a Knicks fan, the first thing that always comes to my head is the Knicks in the nineties. That is it for me growing up and like I think for most people, like that's the image of what the Knicks are. And it's like if you think about the Grizzlies, I will always think of like those grit and grind teams. And when you have an identity like that, you know, like it's not just fans that that get attached to that identity. Like organizations get attached to that identity. Like, you know, uh the Knicks really, if you were looking at it objectively, if you look at Ewing stats and all that shit, like they probably could have traded probably maybe even should have traded Ewing sooner than they did. Or, you know, whatever it is, like you can make that argument. But it's hard. Like, you know, how do you cut the cord with a guy and with an era that kind of like delivered you so much success and a guy that left it all on the floor for you and is like the greatest player in your franchise history. And people don't maybe understand that with the Grizzlies, but like, you know, Marcus Gasol, Mike Conley, like those are their, those are the best players in franchise history. It is hard to just like move on from that. And, and it, it was hard for Oklahoma city to move on from Russ. And I get that. Um, and I just like, I guess I just want to like, before I, sorry, I don't want to, cut into you too much here Alex but I just wanted to say like when I said Presti failed I don't mean to say that as like the trades he made this summer were bad but it's like I just can't give him that much credit for like salvaging a situation that I think should have been better to begin with is all but yeah I mean I think uh, yeah I I guess with Presti like to (laughs) I feel like this is like the the Sam Presti discussion hour but um I, I guess like to your point like I don't I think that he succeeded this summer in just in the sense that like yeah he did it, it was great like, like he he sort of got handed almost like a, like a golden goose here as far as like Kawhi Leonard decided that he wanted Paul George and so Paul George in his mind was strong arming his way out of there but in reality you know they had the Clippers like completely against the wall here with you know this this trade opportunity because you know the Clippers were like well we have to give them basically whatever they want because that's the only way we're getting Kawhi Leonard. And and Bomber you know, had the, done so much cocaine that, like, he just needed Kawhi Leonard. Dude, Bomber's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Bomber's so nuts. So let's – hold on. So let's actually just end on Bomber's cocaine habit. That's to, a good idea. To uh, go to our next segment, even though there's actually – even in this Freedom of Peace, there's a whole, like, discussion of the idea of, like, how like fans and us like blog boys even discuss basketball as like how the years progress. I I think we'll save that for a different podcast because I actually think that's a really interesting one. The idea of constantly using, you know, advanced stats and becoming salary cap experts Jesus. and all those sort of things. So I think that's an interesting idea. The idea of like how kind of universal group thing kind of comes into play with this because Freeman does touch on that in the way we discuss the uh, the NBA. But we're gonna get to uh, our segment that we're calling Good Take Bad Take, which is the temporary name. Um, we do have some ideas of what we eventually would call it, but you know, if you guys have any other, uh, names, send in ideas, just send in ideas, um, tweet at us, you know, scooter toots, uh, posting show, Schwinny Pooh. I don't even know what Alex, is it the Alex Wolf? I don't even know. Mm-hmm. Here. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're just tweeted us ideas of the names. I mean, why would they tweet it at me? I'm not, I'm not running this show. Are you guys trying to, are you guys trying to annex me right now? Is this what's happening? Maybe. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you want to tweet at, you know, posting and toasting, if you want to tweet, at um the Knicks it's, it's at PT uh, Knicks. Twitter itself. Um exactly. if you want to tweet at Mitchell Robinson, um <laughs> if you want to tweet at uh you know anyone, if you want to tweet at Zach Lowe for ideas for our show, go ahead. I don't care where you tweet these things. 
Should we just so, say uh, the actual posting and toasting handle? It's at PT Nick's blog. Not okay, at posting at, and toasting. Yeah, whatever, same difference. So um <laughs> I'm gonna read off a bunch of these uh takes that we got. Um if we didn't get to all of it, you guys, you know, sorry, because you know, shit happens. So we actually got one in here. We're actually gonna do something a little more serious, a little more Nick's centric. This is from Jack, and his handle is two percent mulque. Um I, I think I read that right. He goes, Dennis Smith Jr.'s development is the most important determining factor if we want to eclipse our projected win total. Is that a good take or a bad take? I'd say I'd say bad take, personally, because I don't think it's all going to hinge on Dennis Smith Jr. I think what's really going to hinge on the Knicks, like the, the Knicks beating their win total of last year, I don't think is going to hinge on any one player. It's going to hinge on the team having a more cohesive identity this year and having a more cohesive offense, having a more cohesive defense. They've certainly added a lot of talented players. Like it's going to be up to Fisdale this year to abandon his like try everything approach of last year and actually figure something out on the floor, find a consistent rotation for once, you know, cause that was one of the biggest things last year. I think that that led to the Knicks, having the low win total on top of, you know, obviously having a lack of talent and stuff on the floor was the fact that Fisdale could never settle on anything and was just, he said that it was only going to be the first 20 games or whatever that he'd be like, Oh, I'm just going to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. But really all, all 82 games, that's all he did was just throw things at the wall and see what stuck. And, and I think that was the biggest problem last year and the biggest thing that needs correcting this year. Schwinn, you have any, uh, anything? Uh, I don't, I mean, I guess because we have to pick one or the other, I'll say bad take, but I don't think it's a bad take. Like, I just think, I mean, to me, the two biggest important factors of like, what are, what's our projected win total? 27, I think, 27 and a half or some shit. Um, like, it's going to be what, what Alex just touched on. Uh, can Fizz manage, maximize like the talent on the roster with proper rotations? You know, that's, that's one, that's one. And then two is like, are are these? It's not like so much just DS like DSJ, but it's like, is DSJ gonna make a step? Like progress? Is Knox gonna progress? Is Frank gonna progress? It's like we have all these young guys that theoretically could make progression in their careers, and I think all of them will have an impact. Can or can have an impact on the other. But most importantly, it's just like, are we are we gonna play defense? Are we gonna play defense? Because if we play some defense, I think that. Um, and I, I think there's enough on this roster where, like, we should be, like, being relatively average on defense is within, it's within grasp if Fisdale, uh wants that to be, like, a priority. Uh, whether he does or not would be interesting because there's also a path where, like, we could be complete ass on defense. So uh, I'm just going to say bad take, but I don't really think it's a bad take. Yeah, to be clear, I don't think it's a bad take either. I, I just, I don't think it's like the take. Like, that's not the reason that the Knicks, you know, win total. They're, they're going to eclipse the win total if they're projected or whatever. But hey, if he does pop, like, we probably do eclipse our win total. But like, oh, you, no could doubt. Say that about, you could say that about a lot of things. So I don't yeah, know. I mean, you could say that about a lot of players. Like, if Kevin yeah. Knox continues the kind of trajectory that he showed during Summer League, I mean, that could definitely affect things. And, and same with like, if RJ Barrett, you know, continues the sort of upward curve that he started experiencing in summer league and, you know, can come in and, and establish himself in the NBA within a few games and make adjustments and stuff. Like 
you know, that, that could affect things too. It, it just depends on how these young guys progress. Plus figuring out how to work in all these vets and, and just find the best way to utilize everybody. Right. Hey, well, uh, great job hedging guys on, uh, that one on this game. Great start to the, uh, the segment. Our, uh, we have two, uh, quite, well, one's a question, one's a take by, uh, Paul Burgess and it's at, at Slope Paul. His take is Mario Hazoni is a better point guard than Dennis Smith. Prove me wrong. And then he also asked us how much weed is ingested by the PNT podcast hosts prior to and during each episode. Well, I'll answer the question since we're recording. Well, right now it's the afternoon, but in the morning, um, I am not waking and baking. I'm more drinking coffee so I can be awake and focusing on this. And if we were at time, I'm more or less probably drinking uh, wine and beer. As much as I want to say the take is a good take because point Hazonia for those last three games was probably better than any point guard ever in the history of the NBA. Um, that's a bad take. I mean, Marizona is a point guard. It's, it's, it's a bad take. Uh, yeah, that's a bad take. Um, I'm, I don't really feel like expanding on that because I, I almost, I hope he's just, I think he's just joking. Um, yeah, I know. That's so do I. It's just, yeah. it's, it's a funny take. Yeah. yeah. No, he's not better than Dennis Smith Jr. as a point guard and, yeah, we'll see that. Uh, how much weed is ingested? Uh, none, none today. Not, not yeah, really but, in general because we're usually recording in the morning, and I don't really. Yeah, it's not really like the time for that for me. Yeah, I'm no, old. I'm more. Of, I'm old. I'm. Yeah, I'm more of a night guy. Just to be like, hey, I'm gonna watch something. You know, it's eight o'clock. You kind of go from I, there. Yeah, I'm also. I'm also on the bad take, funny take, uh, train here. Obviously, that's not true, but. However, I will say that, you know, if, if you could capture Point Hazonia from those last three games and turn it into his career arc, then maybe you have a, a case, but that's definitely not sustainable. Um, and as far as smoking weed, I don't really smoke much. You're not a host of the Posting and Toasting Show podcast. Yeah, you don't get a chance up, to answer I'm a guest, so I, I... Yeah, exactly, a guest. He didn't say, what did guest. the guests do? Well, he didn't say what the guests do. He doesn't care about you. Well, maybe he's curious about, if I smoke up before Locked on Knicks. I don't know. He doesn't. All right, Paul, if you're actually listening to the podcast, could you please tell Alex you don't care about his thoughts on his weed ingestion? Wow. So we oh, appreciate that. Okay. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Our next question is from Misty Mountain Wop. And who's that? I don't know who that is. Who is it? Great yeah. question, Alex. It is our good friend and the best host of the Locked on Knicks podcast, James Marcita. I actually can't even I can't even really argue that personally. I'm not one to really pump myself up and I thought James did a really good job, so you know, you're not even offending me, even though you wanted to hurt me there. That's how I'd play it too if I was offended. Yeah. yeah. I mean I would do the same thing you're doing right now. Sticks and stones may break my bones, Drew. But chicken <laughs> breast will never hurt. hurt me. Yeah, well speaking of chicken breast, um he at he gave us the take of chicken breast is the best part of the chicken. Um, that's an awful take, and anyone who actually believes that is a monster. And just just for the record, um, Alex and uh, enemy of the pod, Zach Deluzio, um, both believe this. Yeah, I'm fully I'm fully on on with that take. I, I love you, chicken breast. You have no taste in food or bad. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't <laughs> understand how that's even possible. How is the chicken breast the best part of the chicken? Explain it's just my favorite part, man. I don't know. It's less work. It tastes good. You, I like you know chicken when, breast. You know when you grab a chicken breast and it just feels like a bag of sand? <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's like a it's like a squishy, slimy. Oh uh, god. Oh god. 
you know, yeah, whatever, just, like a nice, yeah. you know, when it's raw like that, and then, you know, you cook it, and it just turns out so yummy. That's, if you cook it right, it turns out great. Obviously, it has more I mean, of, chicken breast is, it can be okay. It's fine. It can be good. It, it's but great in no if you way, cook it right. You yeah, can try it out real it, quick, it can, obviously. It, I agree. Chicken breast can be awesome. And guess what? It, it's still not the best part of the chicken. Yeah, not I, even a, it's not even the best part. It's not even with nowhere near the best part of the chicken. See, I don't know. I get gross. Like, I don't like, like, the thighs and the legs and stuff because yeah. all that shit, all that shit by the edge of the bone, like, grosses me out. I don't like that stuff. Oh, God, you're, I can't even talk to you right now. I mean, the meat itself is fine. It's good. It's tasty. But I like the chicken breast where I can just eat the whole freaking thing and not have to be, like, constantly, like. So basically, Alex like, doesn't like to, like, have any, you know, he doesn't like to like, work at all. When he's I don't like to work for my food. No, I'm, that's oh, you don't like lobster. Alex thing. You don't yeah. like lobster. Oh, I, I love lobster. That's an exception. But that's okay. fun, man. That's a fun experience, like this cracking open lobster. So many, you know, a lot of wiffle waffle thing over here. A lot of, just saying, getting a lot of bad vibes here, Alex. Okay. Well, that's all right. I'm going to keep eating my chicken breast and enjoying it. It's not like I won't eat a chicken thigh. I mean, I'll eat I'll eat the other cuts of chicken. But if, if given the choice of, like, oh, you know, would I rather, like, dissect a chicken thigh or would I rather just eat a piece of chicken breast? I'd rather just eat the piece of chicken breast. <sighs> All right, so let's just that's, that's just so wrong. It's just wrong. Like, well, you know, everybody's really disappointing. Opinions, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, we, <laughs> so wait, is my take is my take of not working for my food good take or bad take? All of your take, all of your entire <laughs> all of your food takes are bad. Like, that's, like any They're food taking bad, bad is a bad one. They're all bad. <laughs> uh, well, whatever. Right, well, well, speaking of enemy of the show, uh, Zach Deluzio tweeted at us, Mitchell Robinson has multiple depoy upside, and this is a fact. And fact is in capital letters. Um, That's a great take. Great take. Phenomenal take. The only good take Wack has ever had in his life. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the only good one. Um, you know, multiple does mean, like, two. And I do think Robinson could win at least two depoys. Well, like, he, he, really he just said, just... yeah, he just said upside. He didn't say, like, Mitchell Robinson, yeah, is it actually going to yeah. do it? Like, yeah, that's different. I don't know. I mean, if you're saying, like, is he going to do it? You, I guess you would just bet no, because, like, winning multiple DPOIs is really hard. Maybe is the only guy in the league that's no, – there's only – there's two guys. That, has Draymond won multiple or just one? I think, I think Draymond's only won one. one. Yeah, so Kawhi is the only person in the league that has multiple. Dwight, Dwight Howard. And Dwight. Oh, Dwight Howard. Dwight doesn't, yeah. Dwight doesn't yeah. count. Oh, God, Dwight Howard. Those were, those were the days. Um, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, usually, like, when there is a multiple-time DPOI guy, like, he wins it, like, you know, four or five years. Like, I think because, you know, uh, Dwight did that, and then Matumbo did that back in the day, too, right? Yeah, so did Ben Wallace, and these were yeah. all within, like, very confined spaces during, like, their peaks. So, right. think, And if you look I at them, they're all guys that play closer to the rim. So it's like, if you're going to bet on a guy to do it multiple times, it's usually, like, going to be that. Like, Gobert probably will be a multiple-time DPOI. Well, and once Mitch, once Mitch starts, like playing big minutes you know for the first time in his life and is putting up like normal like 30 minute per game stats and playing every single night starting every single night and starts doing all the shit that we've become accustomed to seeing him doing like blocking people with the three-point line and all that and like god forbid the knicks actually get kind of good too like people are going to go wild over that like i feel like it was very slept on overall by the league this year or like fans you know around the league because nobody gave a shit about the Knicks this year but once he starts doing that stuff on a team with anything to play for and affecting games that way I mean it's it's pretty it's honestly like 
kind of revolutionary. Like he's gobbling guys up at the three point line in the same way that, you know, really good centers gobble people up inside the paint, but he can also gobble them up inside the paint. So I, I think it's going to, once people start taking notice of that, he'll start getting, you know, buzz as like potential DPOI, especially if the advanced numbers start like really painting him in a super favorable way. Yeah. The hardest thing for him is just going to be competing with Jared Allen. So. Yeah, it's yeah. true. The block king of New York who yeah. got replaced by Mitch's backup on a big contract. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, our next take is from Max Marin, and he's at Dr. Seraphim. And his take is the only thing more overrated than Unisnake is avocado. And while, the, while Unisnake and number six, you know, as overrated as he is, Avocados aren't overrated, so this is a bad take. Uh, avocados are overrated, but they are not more overrated than than number six. So, God, that's I guess that's a bad take, but I, I feel it. I'm, I'm okay. Calling, I'm calling bad take as well, Drew. I'm with you. I I don't think avocados are overrated. I think they're a very versatile food. Like. You can do a lot of shit with avocados. All right, I'm changing my uh, my stance on avocados. They're officially overrated now because wow. I'm not associating with you or any of your food takes. Wow. All right. Well, I'm just gonna sit over here and keep okay. I, I, avocados. I, I'm gonna tell you, like I I ne- like whenever I go to like when I go to like fucking Chipotle, I never I never get I never get the guac. It's I think it's a ripoff. It's like why am I paying you two eighty or whatever whatever they charge like three bucks to add. You know. You know why it is. Well, right? I agree. That's yeah. That's definitely overpriced. But like that. That's. I mean, like that. Like that. That's what I mean. It's just like in that context, I do think like avocado. When you go out to eat, if they charge you, like it's always a ripoff when they charge. you I mean, but do do you go do you go to the store and buy avocados though? They're like two dollars a piece right now because of yeah. all the tariffs and bullshit. No, I, they they are they are and like even then I think it's like, I mean, they're fine. They're good. I like avocado. It's fine. But, like, there are people that are fucking crazy about that shit and put it on everything. And, like, no. It's not I that. Mean, I don't even feel like every meal. But, like, you can eat avocados for breakfast. You could just, like, slice them up and, like, put a little, like, salt and pepper on them and just eat them. Like, you can put them in a salad. You can so bake now, avocados if you're, like, vegan. Perfect proof here that avocados are overrated. Wow. Well, all right. I'm going to stand alone on Avocado Island with, you know, the other, like, ten gajillion people. So, well, you know, whatever. You're, you're all sheep. See, I just want to point out that uh, Alex's take, the idea of you can for avocados are versatile, you just have to season it with salt and pepper. That's just so, I don't know, boring. Or you never blend an avocado? And like, yeah, no, I have. So if you're doing anything with an avocado, so if you're doing it for, like, breakfast, for example, like, you get yourself a nice piece of sourdough bread, you grill it up, you mash the avocado in with, like, different seasoning and not just salt and pepper – so you can do, for example, Dude, I'm not saying like every time, but I'm saying you could if you wanted to literally. Yeah, but your example of, yeah, but your example of salt and pepper is like the worst example. Like you could have just said like the Trader Joe's everything but the bagel seasoning. Of like, course. Really? Really? Are you like, are you fucking. You're shilling for Trader Joe's. Yes. yes can I'm you at least get the sponsorship? Right can, you, can you at least get the sponsorship money before yeah, this, you start shilling for your company? Yeah, this uh, episode is brought to you by Trader Joe's. Um, it is your neighborhood grocery store. And if you have one, make sure you go there and you buy the avocado, every, not the avocado, buy the avocados and everything but the bagel seasoning and their San Francisco sourdough loaf. Well, you just, you just failed your first uh, live read, Drew. Congrats. 
Ouch. Oh, Ouch. okay. Wow. Get, right. get avocado seasoning. <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, all right, our next take is by, um, I don't know if he's a friend or an enemy of the show just yet, but it's from Budum. And it's at the real Budum. And his take, yeah, I mean, but even though he sucks, is he a friend of the show or an enemy of the show? He's an acquaintance of the show. Okay, so acquaintance of the show, Budum. His take is the Knicks should, should have given Alan Krabs $72 million this offseason. Great take. That's a great take. And, um, I, that's the only right take. I agree. Yeah, I'm going great take as well. Yeah, I mean, if you can get Alan Crabb on your team for $72 million, I think you have to. You got to do it. And you if got, you can, I mean, if you can just trade for him, fuck yeah, you got to yeah, do it. You got to do it. Any, by any means necessary. Any way you can get Alan Crabb in your team, you do it. You do it. Like, I'll right, give up assets. I'll give up real assets for Alan Crabb right now. I'll probably give up Dennis Smith Jr., Frank Nilakina, and Kevin Knox at minimum, I think. Maybe that's, one of the Dallas picks, too. That's a good trade. I definitely yeah. agree with that. So our next take is from the Nick Click, and you can find him at, at Nick Click. And he goes, if Frank three-point shot improves this season, and in parentheses, and it will, the Knicks would win more games with him starting at the two over RJ. Um, I think it's a bad take. What do you guys think? I think... I think that's a good take, but I don't necessarily know why you'd have to play it as one or the other. That's why I, I think it's that's why I think it's a bad take because I don't know why you're pitting them against one another. Like my solution to that would be sit Kevin Knox, who would presumably be your starting three if RJ's your starting two. Like sit Kevin Knox, bring him off the bench, have it be like DSJ, Frank, RJ, uh, Julius, and and Mitch Robinson, and that's your starting lineup. And then yeah, I, I mean I think. I think that if Frank has a consistent three-point shot, that absolutely would be a better a better way to do things than having like RJ and Knox out there. But I, I don't think that that Frank has to come at the expense of RJ. If that you know, that's kind of my thing. Uh, I I don't really get that take because I, I actually think if Frank's three-point shot improves, he's like you'd want to play him with RJ. Uh, yeah, that's, that's why I think it's that's a bad what I'm take. saying. You got to play him yeah. together. Yeah, so it's it. I guess that's a that's a bad take, but I I yeah, it's a bad take. I get where he's coming from. I just think he's picking the wrong person to take out of the lineup. It's a good take and a bad take because he's implying like replace RJ as the starting two, but like you should also subsequently then replace Knox with RJ as the starting three. I think in that scenario, I just can't see Knox not starting. I feel like or at least he's. I feel like he's at least going to get the chance to start the year. But maybe I mean we'll see. Maybe maybe uh. Fizdale will have an awakening. Well, maybe Frank will have an awakening and like yeah. legitimately be canning so many three pointers in preseason and stuff. They have no choice but to play oh, him. Man. If Frank shoots league average from three, I'm I'm gonna lose it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you on there. All right, that's so where we're at. Up, that's where we're at, guys. Frank Nilkina is shooting what 36 percent from three. <laughs> All right. Do you want to end on another Frank take or a Trier take to end the segment? Uh, Trier take. Enough. We'll, we'll probably have like an we'll probably do like an entire episode on Frank at some point. Yeah, so we'll just we'll end on the trier take. This is from Isozo Stan, so you know this is going to be a a very even keeled take, and that's he's at, at the Phantom Knee. Alonso Trier will win a start will win a spot in the starting lineup. Um, that's a bad take. He's not winning a start. He's not winning a spot. He's coming off the bench. 
Yeah, I'm saying bad take as well. I mean, especially because I think his best role is coming off the bench. And I think that, I think Fizdale would recognize that. He's still going to get minutes. He's getting consistent, like, 20 some odd minutes a night. But he's not, he's not going to win a starting spot. If anybody's going to sneak in and win a starting spot, it's going to be Dotson. Like, it's a starting two guard. It's not going to be Trier. Trier's not going to win the starting job, I don't think. Uh, yeah, bad take. I'll be, I'd be shocked. I'd be, I, I would be shocked and also very concerned if he won a spot in the starting lineup because I just think his skill set is so much more ideally utilized off the bench. Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, so that ends good take, bad take. Um, if you guys have any more takes for next week, you know, please send them our way. And also, you don't have to just give, like, your takes. Like, if you see a take on the internet that you think is, like, really good or really bad, let us know. Uh, especially if they're bad, because we really do enjoy trashing, like, other people's really bad takes. It's, uh, it's always fun, because we're, we're here to hate. So, uh, I think that pretty much wraps up the show. Um, Alex, do you have anything to plug, to promote, or... I don't know, anything along those lines? Anyone to shout out or anything to shout out? You know, stuff like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, uh, you know, of course, posting and toasting, which this is a P&T show, so I don't really have to pump that up like I normally have to, but follow at PT Nick's blog because that's my large account that I get to manage. Follow me on Twitter at the Alex Wolf. Uh, also check out Locked on Nick's. You know, if you love this show, you'd love Locked on Nick's even more because it's the best Knicks podcast on the planet. Okay. Uh, and follow at Locked on Knicks on Twitter. Um, other than that, yeah, uh, I don't know. But, no, I'm only kidding about the, the the best Knicks show thing. I think I think I love that we coexist together. I think this is going to be a beautiful relationship for a long time. So, uh, And also, congrats. Shouts to you guys for launching the show and for sorting out your audio issues. After episode one. Wow. Um, <laughs> but you guys are doing a good job so far, and I'm proud of you guys. So I just figured I'd say that on air. That's very that's very thoughtful of you, um, Alex. Of course. Very thoughtful. Always appreciate a uh, a dig before a compliment. Yeah. Well, you know, I can't I can't blow your head up too much. I gotta like you know even it out a little bit. So I had to make sure to you know break you down before I build you back up. So. It's just, it's good management, good management that way, you know? Oh, yeah, it's definitely good. Yeah, definitely really healthy way to uh, to have any sort of relationship is to break people down and then rebuild them up. That's uh, yep. That sounds very healthy. It's relationships uh, one-on-one, Drew. Relationships one-on-one. Yeah, definitely don't get your relationship advice from Alex Wolf. So let's just uh, keep that in mind. Uh, <laughs> Schwinn, you got anything to plug, promote, shout out, anything like that? No, I've been having, like, real big... Uh... What do you call it? Writer's block? I don't know what the hell it's called. But yeah, I can't. I can't. Yeah, it's writer's block. Yeah, I don't know. If you, if anybody wants to like give me an idea about something to write about, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Let me know. But I'll second I, that actually. If someone wants to, because I've also been, I've had some shit that I've been dealing with, but I'm ready to like start writing again. And I have no idea what to write about. So yeah, so you know, just fucking at me on Twitter and uh, let me know what you want me to write about. Or if you don't want me to write, if you're happy with me not writing, let me know. I'm happy to keep not writing. So. Um, yeah, let me know. Well, that's good. I'm trying to think to, uh, to, um, I want to shout out Mimar again for giving us these, uh, these sweet beats for the, uh, say his whole name, man, so people know where to find him. Mimar Sinan, at Mimar Sinan Music on Twitter. 
Hey, thanks, Alex. Um, You're welcome. I appreciate it. I'm making, I'm making sure to help Mimar out, man. He's he's the man. He did the Locked On Knicks theme, too. He's he's done, like, the theme for, like, every freaking Knicks podcast now. Well, except for one, and he clearly gave us the best work, and he gave, you know, he gave you guys some scraps. He gave me, but like, he, four options, and I picked the best one, and it's amazing, and I love our theme song. All right, if you insist, so we're going to we're gonna shout out Mimar. Um, I'm going to shout out uh, the – no, I'm not going to shout out Big Little Lies. It was a disappointing ending. It could have been handled a little better. They really blew the uh, courtroom scene with the Cole Kidman in Merrill Street. Like, that should have been, like, a big scene. They just kind of didn't do it too well. Not upsetting because you got, like, two powerhouse actors in there, you know, flexing muscle and stuff. Um, Schwinn doesn't want me to plug uh, what's it called Gideon Falls because he's tired of me. I'm telling people what to read. Um, I'm not writing anything right now. I'm too busy doing this podcast. So I'm going to plug the Posting and Toasting show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts right now, and we're working on getting you get everyone like on like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, um, NPR. I'm trying to think of other places. So I'm plugging the show. I think that makes sense, right, to plug this show at the end of the uh, show? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that's uh, that's all I got. So we're oh, I got more... I got some, oh. some quick news. Uh, a new episode of Mitch's Block Party just dropped with uh, Kadeem Allen. So check that out. Oh yeah, definitely oh, definitely watch uh, Mitch's Block Party. It's definitely like the funniest show on a uh, on the internet it's, right in now. History, I mean, I think in all in all history, all television. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's definitely like Mitch's Block Party, Seinfeld, and. Yeah, I think it's about it, right? Is that one and two? The, uh, I scale? So. Somewhere. I think you can, like, kind of argue between the two, but somewhere. Community, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Alright. Let's just end this one. I love it. Drew's gonna totally pretend like he hates community right now to shit on me. No, I, 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 like, no, love, I love, no, I love community. It's a personal favorite. It's not in the same league as Seinfeld, and I don't understand why you had to drop it in right there, right? I was trying to end the podcast. So, I don't know. I just felt like it, man. I, I love community. I think it's I think it's definitely that level tier to me. Right there with the the Mitch's block party and, and Seinfeld, I think. Alright, well that's a bad take. Um so we're gonna end it right there. We're gonna let Mimar's beat right out right now. See you until next week, guys.